AVXL episode 182 was recorded on May 19th, 2022. How big should your next TV be? Audio gear from Munich High End. How projectors make colors. The fifth element is coming back, baby. And quite a bit more. Don't forget, if you got a question, email ask at avxl.com. And thank you. Really, thank you. I'm, I'm not kidding. Thank you to everyone that supports us at patreon.com slash avxl. Testing one, two, three. All right. I'm not blowing anything out. Ignorant weasels chewing on your soul. Ignorant weasels. Do you have speed? Yeah. Welp, Navy Excel, your guide to the best in home video and audio gear, no matter what your budget is. I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. It is an exciting day here in St. Louis. There has been thunder, rain, and mayhem. Ooh. <laughs> nice. I've decided I... I prefer my thunder, rain, and mayhem when it's not waking the dog up at four in the morning. That's my new theory at this point. The weather is a rockin'. Oh, my goodness. Uh, you caught something that kind of shocked me. And I I just, uh, I wanted to talk about it first because I was just so shocked. The fifth element is coming back. And thankfully, it's not a remake. <laughs> <laughs> no, you can actually see it in the theaters for two specific showings on June 26th and June 29th. So uh, I believe it's a Sunday and a Wednesday. And hmm. I am not sure what theaters these will be in, but hopefully we'll have a few of the primo theaters out there. Something like maybe a, a Dolby Cinema release would be awfully cool. But either way, if you've never caught the flick or you just want to experience it on the super big screen, you'll have a couple days next month to check it out and participate in the extravaganza that is that movie. It's a fun ride. It is a fun ride. So if you want to find out if this is going to be anywhere near you, um, this is done by the same company that does Studio Ghibli Fest. And uh, it's called Fathom. F-A-T-H-O-M-E-V-E-N-T-S dot com. Uh, Fathom Events. And this is not an advertisement. We're not making any money here. We're just enthusiasts. Um, well, let's see. Basically, you can enter in uh, your zip code. Because sometimes they actually do lists of everywhere it's going to be playing. And, you know, there's not a single... Technically, theater tickets are on sale, but I'm not getting a single theater... Oh, nope. I take that back. On my third attempt... I was actually able to both type in my zip code and hit enter to find out where it's playing locally. Oh, very cool. Yeah. And the best part of this is there's a theater in St. Louis I didn't even know about that I just found out about. Ronnie's Cinna. <laughs> that might be part of the adventure, too, is to see and find what theater locally or the one closest yeah. to you will be showing this. And if you have any decent options, so to speak. Oh, Studio Ghibli Fest. The Cat Returns 20th Anniversary, also on June 26th. Kiki's Delivery Service, House Moving Castle, Spirited Away. Uh, these are all amazing movies. If you've never gotten the chance to see a Miyazaki movie in a theater, um, I highly recommend it. Uh, because generally speaking, everyone in the theater is going to be a huge fan. And it's kind of wild to see characters you've known for years. Giant screen covering joy i have to say yeah if, if i can get into a dolby cinema or the quality equivalent i think i will actually check out the fifth element when it comes out next month that would just be a, a terrific ride a good reason to go it's a fun movie yeah it it's is a funny movie too i haven't seen it in a long time so 
I'm looking forward to it. It holds up pretty well. Uh, <laughs> On repeated viewing. Thank goodness. There's nothing worse than like watching a treasured childhood or teenage movie and being like, yeah, that, that just doesn't work anymore. Nope. Nope, nope, nope. Uh, Gary Oldman playing the villain in The Fifth Element. I hate to be a drop a spoiler if you haven't seen The Fifth Element <laughs> in the last 25 years. Uh, but uh, if you haven't seen it, um, Slow Horses, which is his new show on Apple TV+, Plus. well, not just him, uh, spy thriller, he plays a right bastard named Jackson Lamb and... Uh, He's he's got a team of MI5 agents, and if you can imagine the the inverse of uh, of James Bond and where they get sent, <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's that's the core of this, and uh, you know they've basically been sent off to do terrible work until they come to their good senses and quit, but instead. Um, other things happen. Uh, it's crazy. It's like 94% on tomato meter. It's, uh, it's very exciting. If you're into spy thrillers, I think anything with (laughs) Gary Oldman's worth a consideration, a good consideration on his presence alone. Oh man. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead are the first time I saw him or the first film I saw him in. And he's, he's just a scene stealer. The professional. His role in the professional. Well, yeah. Every. <laughs> oh my goodness. Hey, what's up? Uh, what's up with the Roku 11.0 update? Hey, I know you finally got it. I did. It finally updated on my beautiful Roku Ultra, and I also noticed uh, there is a new 2022 model of the Roku Ultra. Hmm. However. I am not really seeing anything new hardware-wise about the new 2022 version of the Ultra. It still has the traditional Bluetooth input if you want to connect a device like your phone or a tablet and stream audio to it. However, it would be really sweet that a device like this would also incorporate something like headphone output so you could connect your wireless headphones. Uh, I don't know if that's really a desirable feature, but that's something I always wonder why they don't. (laughs) Although the Roku Ultra does include its wonderful remote control with its private listening feature where you can plug in a pair of earbuds and give it a listen that way. However, I have never even tried that out. And that's something I'd really like to uh, <laughs> I'd really like to check. We were talking about the 11.0 update a couple weeks ago. And yeah, by this point, I think most of the TVs and standalone streaming products should have received that update. So if you haven't, do check your settings. And it's probably sitting there. And that incorporates the additional audio options for the soundbar products, in addition to just another solid update for more live TV options for everyone. Live. Yes. Live is good. If I could say one thing with the Roku Ultra in general in the years I've been using it is that it tends to run a little warm. Uh, I'd go so far as to say hot in some cases. And I've even gone so far as to take one apart. I've repasted the heatsink and added some speed oh, wow. holes to the case for a little extra ventilation. It is effectively a sealed device, and it's not the best if it's going to be already in a warm location. But the fact that it really doesn't have much in the way of venting is something that's always kind of concerned me just for the longevity of the product. But either way, uh, hopefully we'll be able to get some hands on with that new 2022 model to see if it's anything other than a name change at this point 
There's only one way to find out. Wait. <laughs> Until it finally is spotted in the wild. Apparently. Oh, goodness. Munich High End 2022 started today. That is a uh, high-end audio show that is, you may have guessed by now, in Munich, Germany. First announcement I saw from the show, the iFi Go Bar. A $329 USB DAC headphone amp from the crew at iFi. And... Uh, I like some of iFi's products have been fantastic. Some of them have been not so fantastic, but uh, there's there's some good stuff going on there uh, when all of their ducks are rowed up. I thought this was kind of crazy because it's also the 10th anniversary of iFi, so there's a special limited edition version of the Go Bar. And the Go Bar is essentially just, you know, a, a little tiny USB brick that you plug headphones into. 18 karat gold plated edition of the Go Bar, uh, a limited gold-plated edition. So the thing's tiny, right? 65 millimeters by 22 millimeters by 13 millimeters. It weighs, you know, 28.5 grams. Uh, I think my favorite part of the design is the tiny LEDs on it that tell you exactly which settings you're using uh, and what's coming out of your phone or your PC. You know, 44, 48, 192, DSD, MQA, and if uh, X-Space or X-Base are turned on. You know, if you put on a set of headphones and you feel like there's too much bass, uh, look to see if the little X-Base light is glowing on the stick. Um, that sounds very handy. Full MQA. It is actually, uh, especially like, you know, I have used many of the USB DAC headphone amps from AudioQuest, the Dragonflies, and they use a color code. So the Dragonfly glows in different colors to tell you what's coming out of your, your PC. And people are probably like, what does it matter? And it's like, well, if you're actually trying to test something or if you've got things misconfigured, you may not be getting, you know, whatever particular flavor of audio you're trying to get. And if I was being sassy, uh, I think one of the funniest things I ever heard about MQA was somebody said, well, you know, you got to have an MQA light. So, you know, MQA is doing the magic. And uh, I'm like, shouldn't you just hear the magic? And they, they replied to me, shh, it's not how it works. Um, <laughs> oh, but man. this is, yeah, if you're into high resolution audio, um, this goes up to 32-bit, 384 kilohertz PCM, uh, native DSD support, uh, full MQA decoding, they're saying. Um, they're also quoting it as being the world's most powerful headphone amp of its size. And I got to be really honest here. Headphone amps, especially for portable devices, are already too damn powerful for all but the most vicious power-sucking headphones you might be traveling with. And I say that because, for example, um, when you look at something like the THX Onyx, which, you know, when you, when you run objective tests on that, it is flawless. It is powerful. Um, and you know, that means if you're using the, the little bar in the corner of windows, if you go to your little screen, your, your little speaker icon there and you, you, uh, slide things down, um, a very small number, you know, digitary, a very small number of, or a very small change in that sound bar is going to make a very large change in your headphones. If you're using a typical headphone that is easy that can be powered by your phone right you know what i mean if you travel around with big heavy planar magnetics that suck up as much power as as you can throw at them um that's one thing but if you're listening to sensitive earbuds it can be really frustrating to have 
a very tiny range of your control go from this is kind of too soft because I can still hear the neighbor doing whatever terrible thing they're doing in the next hotel room to oh my god the pain my ears are bleeding which is a long way of saying I'm really over people trying to make the world's most powerful anything in terms of headphone amps exactly Um, or at least have dual modes for it so yeah. you're not limited to such a small range because in certain cases that could be where a bump of the device suddenly puts it into crazy loud mode where you're either reaching for the yeah. earbuds to rip them out of your head or you're trying to suddenly manipulate the device at warp speed and <laughs> could make things yeah. worse, could make it better. <laughs> yeah. I'm Either very way. curious to see how this, yeah, no. I will admit I, I often listen to levels. I probably, my median listening levels are probably lower than a lot of other people's. That said, I enjoy having a wide range of adjustments to the volume of whatever I'm listening to, which is part of why the digital encoder and and how the crew at JDS Lab set up the Element 3 is so appealing. In any case, uh, very curious to hear how the GoBar measures against the THX Onyx, which at $200 measures pretty much flawlessly and is considerably less expensive. So something to think about. By the way, that gold bar edition is $499, May 20th for the Go Bar, and the uh, the gold bar will be following on June 20th. Bling. Uh, other announcement that came out, Denon's got a couple of new integrated amplifiers, the 900, the PMA 900 HNE, and the PMA 1700 NE, and uh, they also dropped a new CD player, the DCD 900 NE, and uh, I have no information on the new CD player, but the PMA 900 uh, NHE is interesting because that's like their first stereo amplifier with uh, that, that fits into their HEOS whole house audio system. Um, that's not a particularly novel feature for AVRs that they do, but this is the first time, as far as I know, that, that they've done it in a, a regular stereo amplifier. Um, so along with HEOS, Bluetooth, AirPlay 2, streaming support for Pandora, Spotify, Spotify Connect, Amazon Music, TuneIn, Deezer, SoundCloud, Tidal, and more. Um, not the most powerful amplifier. You want some relatively easy-to-drive speakers. Uh, not so much because it's a 50-watt amplifier, but I'm a little nervous because they go from 50 watts times 2, uh, 8 ohms, 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz, 0.07 THD, to 85 watts into 4 ohms at 1 kilohertz at 0.7% THD. So those are two completely different measurement systems uh, <laughs> well. for the amplifier power, and which, which is a, a long way of saying it's if you have difficult-to-drive speakers, this is probably not the amp for you. Uh, if you have 8-ohm speakers and you're not trying to use them in full self-destructive disco mode, you'll probably be fine. But... Uh, I thought it was funny to see them shift from uh, 20 to 20 kilohertz to uh, 1 kilohertz for the measuring. This is, it's, you know, email acidavxl.com if you want me to talk about uh, why <laughs> amplifiers are measured in different ways. Um, but generally speaking, if they're doing that 1 kilohertz measurement, that means it's probably showing a significantly higher amount of THD in the 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz measuring system. Um, in any case... Uh, for most people listening at moderate volumes on a decent set of speakers, 50 watts per channel is more than enough. That's going to be uh, $949, supposed to ship in July. And then the 1700NE is uh, somewhat more powerful, uh, although also doing that weird jump 
in uh, measurement standards, but uh, 70 watts into 8 ohms, 140 watts into 4 ohms, admittedly on different measuring systems on that, also going from 0.07 THD to 7.7% THD. An interesting phono stage. Also a USB DAC that supports up to 384 kilohertz, 32-bit input if you want to do the high-resolution audio thing. Um, EQ settings because, hey, kids, this is an integrated amplifier, uh, bass, treble, and mid-range adjusters, or I should say because receiver. Uh, I thought it was kind of odd. You can also use this with an external preamp that has external preamp input terminals. So I don't know if that's signaling a future product from Denon or the possibility. It basically means that that you will be able to use the amplifier section of this with an external preamp. Um, that's going to be a uh, a because uh, I also like the design too. It's pretty. Uh, Twenty one hundred dollars in June. I'm also curious to see how people react to the way they put the LCD into the front panel of that. Um, Indeed, but. Uh, Hey, for specs like that that are listed with two different standards, would you pretty much ignore one or take preference over one particular one? Or should you just look at the one that's the worst, quote unquote, well, or the best? <laughs> I, it's like I see two different things. Here's, and So, okay, this actually warrants a more extensive discussion, uh, probably more than we want to try to fit into this week's show. But essentially... When you see a measurement of one kilohertz, it's like the standard mid-frequency point that people use to measure. That's very, very different when you measure across all frequencies, you know, 20 to 20,000 hertz, and sometimes um, significantly. Got it. And then there's a whole series of arguments, you know, Audioholics has, has written about this, like, you know, do you need to measure all seven channels simultaneously on a 7.1 receiver? versus measuring just the left and right fronts channels. And uh, I would like to dig into this to get into it. Um, Totally, because just uh, looking at it, it would seem like, yeah, I would rather have them test a complete frequency range, that pretty much what we can hear versus a specific one tone, so to speak. And yeah, but uh, I look forward to learning (laughs) a little more. I will I will try to put something that is not uh, too incoherent. But essentially, it's good to know the 8 ohms kind of like is what people think of as the standard. But in a lot of cases, for example, so many of the ELAC speakers that we enjoy listening to, they are rated at 6 ohms and they may dip down into 4 ohms. And you don't want your amplifier to run out of power and clip or distort when you're using a speaker that is a little more power hungry. But I'm going to stop right there. Um, I'll have more questions. I I promise. (laughs) There will be more questions. One last thought about uh, Denon, or more accurately, Sound United, which owns Denon along with Marantz and Bowers and Wilkins and Polk Audio and Definitive Technology. Uh, I didn't realize as of April 13th, it is final that uh, Massimo Corp. Uh, officially owns Sound United. They spent like a billion dollars. Um, and Massimo is a global medical technology company. They do uh, patient monitoring, medical devices, sensors. Uh, that's what Acoustic says. Um, they also say uh, that uh, Massimo, quote, plans on leveraging Sound United's expertise in consumer electronics and global distribution to expand its own customer products business. Which is, to me, seems like we have a big old medical supply business. We want to sell consumer devices, so we'll buy this company. We will diversify one way or another. Yeah. Well, this is kind of a big deal, right? Because um, there are not a lot of AVR manufacturers left. 
right? Denon and Marantz, which are owned by Sound United. Um, there is Yamaha, and then there is Onkyo, and Onkyo just filed for bankruptcy. Uh, props to at Wobbles, who tweeted a link to a What Hi-Fi article to me. Um, so uh, they've sold the name, um, you know. And this actually goes back to, I guess, September last year. They sold the AV business to Sharp and Vox International and uh, and the earphones and headphones business, quote, to an investment fund. So the Onkyo brand itself will live on in a joint venture between Sharp and Vox. That could be good for Onkyo. That could be bad for Onkyo. I also didn't realize, apparently, according to that article on What Hi-Fi, Onkyo tried to sell its the audio business to Sound United, who already owns Denon and Marantz and Class A, uh, back in 2019. So less competition in the AVR market, although there are a lot of smaller companies that do uh, amplifiers and AV processors, but that's right. usually fairly high end and complicated in some cases and often involves a lot of programming that smaller companies may or may not be particularly awesome at. But uh, yeah, there's a there's a big jump between spending like fifteen hundred dollars for a seven dot one or seven dot two dot four AVR and spending like five grand or four grand for a reference cinema processor. Um, they get spendy. <laughs> they do, but they're so feature packed. If you're doing some fairly sophisticated stuff, it may be the best way to do it. But that's also three to five grand or or vastly more before you get the amplification to power all your speakers, but uh, pour one out for Onkyo and uh, hopefully I, you know, hopefully Sharp and Vox do something intriguing with that. Hey, I wanted to pick up on last week's discussion about projectors and we were talking about light sources in general. And one of the most popular systems used to drive the pixels for projectors is that three LCD technology, literally three small LCD panels that operate in tandem to process the red, the blue, and the green light. Now, when you talk about a lamp-based projector, which is quite a few of the three LCD designs you'll find out there, particularly at any kind of a good value, in order to create that red, blue, and green light for each LCD in the system, they use something called a dichroic mirror. And this was one method I failed to mention last week, but I just wanted to quickly mention that by using these mirrors, which you can think of as allowing certain colors or wavelengths of light through, and they will reflect the rest of it. The lamp modules you could think of as producing a white light to begin with. And then at that point, that light is then broken up into its three components for doing three color image processing, and then recombined at the very end in a prism-like structure that combines the red, the blue, and the green pathway right onto the screen we see. Now, another way of creating a white light is through the use of a blue laser shining onto a phosphor material. Typically, that blue plus a yellow will create something that is quote-unquote white light. And then that could also be split by these dichroic mirrors into the individual RGB that reaches each of those three LCD systems for creating that. Now, with DLP projectors, one thing I failed to mention is that they are very fast in terms of their absolute pixel switching speed. And that can take advantage of something like a pulsed light source, in particular, your LEDs and lasers out there. Now for LED projectors that you'll hear or read about, they are typically DLP and they are either using something like a white LED or true red, blue, and green LEDs that are then 
pulsed accordingly with that single chip mm -hmm. system. LG has an example of pretty much every projector technology out there, including a pure LED-based one in the form of their HU70LA. And they've also experimented with adding beyond just a blue laser and converting that up, they've added in that second red laser. So you get the blue and the red being extremely saturated. The blue then could be used with a phosphor material to get your green channel. And then it's all combined into that RGB image we'll see but it's without the expense of having a true red, blue, green laser system built into it. If you want, you could also combine lasers and LEDs. And an example of that would be the HU710, which is also an LG projector. Uh, that's one way where you could say, take a very saturated red, combine it with a blue laser. And again, it's just another combination of that. So there are still really about three projector technologies out there in terms of the imaging and how it's created. And that would be the three LCD, the digital light processing from Texas Instruments, or those L-cost related systems like Sony and others have pioneered, and JVC, of course, that liquid crystal on silicon. But when it comes to the light source, yeah, it's all over the place. And while RGB just may intuitively be the most saturated color palette possible, especially if you can fine tune exactly what wavelengths are coming out, uh, there are other options, especially when you're looking into the more value-oriented projectors out there. There you have it. Just a quick follow-up on color. <laughs> yeah, the dichroic mirror. Most of those three LCD projector systems are actually sealed uh, from external dust or anything getting within the light path itself. But uh, if you took a look at one from the inside, you would see very distinct pathways as the mirror is splitting the different colors out and then recombining them at the end. It's... Quite cool, in a sense, although it runs rather hot. <laughs> There's always heat to deal with. There's always heat to deal with. Oh, my goodness. Hey, patreon.com slash avxl if you want to help support the show, if you want to get uh, some of the insider treats we do for patrons, just head over to patreon.com slash avxl. And we've been taking a moment in the show to thank our longest-running patrons. And uh, we're just into February of twenty. I guess we're in this maybe our second week of February 2016. Uh, a big shout out to Alan Lilich, Rick Hood, Paul Masajewski, Michael Danielson, Stephen Richard, and Mike Schiller. And uh, that also might be Stephen Richard and Paul. Hopefully I got Masajewski correctly. And uh, do me a favor, email me, ask at avxl.com or go on to Patreon, patreon.com slash avxl and post a message to correct my pronunciation of your name, to say hello, to ask us a question, to ask Robert to get technical on how the bits get turned into photons and pixels or anything else you're curious about because we make the show for everybody listening and we especially make the show for our patrons because they make the show possible patreon.com slash avxl is the place thank you so much it is um, really kind of wonderful how long some folks have been with us i mean everyone yeah. we've mentioned recently is six plus years and that's that is something Hopefully I they're not listening and going <laughs> what <laughs> that's it <laughs> i've had enough <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Humor. Humor I make. Uh, I was helping out a, a friend of ours who was working on an article, and they needed a quote. And uh, I put together a bunch of different quotes. And one of them was about um, 
screen sizes. And I was looking at kind of the history of sizing screens. And, uh, you know, especially if you're old enough to have grown up thinking a 36 inch television was huge, or if you've spent the last few years, or I'm thinking a particular family member who's like, I've, I've had this 40 inch TV for the last decade. Why would I want anything more? especially since they're about six feet from the screen, the idea of putting a 65-inch screen six feet in front of you may sound ridiculous. There's like charts and there's lists and there's graphs and there's calculators. Oh, the uh, short to, answer to, is to fill that wall with as big of a screen as will absolutely fit. However, to like, a point. like you just said, though, <laughs> I often used to use a 65-inch screen from six feet away. Right. And I'll be honest with you, that will encompass your entire field of view pretty much. Yeah. Uh, I find and a 55-inch screen at that distance is just as impressive. It can be. Like, say, for that end-of-the-bed TV, literally, you're going to be maybe six feet away from it. Right. Uh, a giant screen's great. It really does provide that cinematic look. But even a 55-inch screen, I find, at close distances is more than enough. Or not too big, for sure. Yeah. So it's kind of crazy, right? When you look at the charts... Some charts give you a range. Some charts give you a sort of like, you know, if you were six feet, a 65-inch TV. When you start collating all this data together, you know, 65-inch TV is optimal for anywhere from six to nine feet, a 55-inch panel from five to seven and a half feet, 85-inch screens, um, anywhere from seven to 11 plus feet. And so a lot of this originates with a... SIMPTI paper, a Society of Motion Picture and Television Engineers paper from 1994, which was uh, the engineering guideline design of effective cine theaters. And I have not found an original copy of that to read, um, but essentially they suggest the screen fill a minimum of 30 degrees for your field of vision and possibly uh, as much as 40 degrees of your field of vision for a theatrical experience. Um, THX th recommends, uh, and this is like THX certified screen placement as of 2016, was 36 degrees oh, happy uh, of your horizontal viewing angle. Yeah. <laughs> and, well, I, I got in, I, I was kind of fascinated by this, right? And that, by the way, that 1994 SIMPTI Engineering Guideline for Design of Effective Cine Theaters, um, that was actually withdrawn in 2003 because everything had changed so much. And if you're into formulas, you take uh, the diagonal measurement and multiply it by 1.2 to get the optimal distance for 40 degrees or 1.6 to get the optimal distance for 30 degrees. So literally, right, like I just said, a 65-inch TV is ideal anywhere from 6 to 9 feet, 55-inch panels like 7.5 to, you know, 5 to 7.5 feet. And I was wondering, like why the 30 or 40 degree difference and it's because we tend to watch things like soccer or baseball in a very very different ways from movies i like kind of how ratings puts it um quote not all content is made to fill the entire field of view this becomes very apparent if you try to watch sports from up close while fixating on a single part of the screen which quickly starts to feel nauseating unquote it's uh uh, and it's funny, right? Because you I tend to watch movies kind of in a fixed position without your face darting all over the screen. Uh, you know, when you have something that's close up and full of motion, again, like soccer, maybe football rather than baseball, uh, it's a different experience. But 30 degrees is, an, I would probably say, is the minimum you want. 
um, 40 degrees. I like a little closer because I watch a lot of movies and, and prestige television. Um, there's a great article up on ratings.com, uh, the signs to distance relationship, uh, if you want to geek out and, uh, I won't even talk about optimum HDTV viewing distance, the Wikipedia article. Um, <laughs> it's all meaningless. It really is. Well, one thing I will say subjectively is that yeah. my difference in viewing going from a 65 inch to a 55 inch screen, one thing that did improve dramatic, not dramatically, but noticeably was the fact that if you're dealing with average broadcast sources on a 4k screen at that size, say 55 or 65 inches, I find the overall quality to be better on the smaller screen because it makes the right. related artifacts harder to actually perceive, especially with things like compression artifacts or visual noise or Whatever, unless you're dealing with pristine sources like yeah. quality streaming or something from a disc. That's where having the larger screen will make you more critical about what you're actually watching because it's easier to see where it can fall apart if it does. And that is one thing I do appreciate about a slightly smaller screen at close distances is that it sort of shrinks that down and it, it seems more seamless even with lesser content yeah. running to it. Not lesser, but... Not exactly your ultra high def 4K content. Yeah, and don't kill yourself if you can't afford the biggest screen in the planet. Just get the best screen you can afford and enjoy the crap out of it. Um. <laughs> totally. Totally. I just wanted to, to dig into that. It was fascinating to see a lot of things referring back to this SMPTE report, including like Scott Wilkinson did an article for Sound and Vision a long time ago. There's just... Lots of information out there. And everything changed when we went from analog televisions to digital televisions because as the resolution gets higher on the screen, you are more comfortable sitting close to the screen. and uh, Or conversely, the farther away you are from the screen, the less resolution matters. You know, the, the bar TV that's 40 feet away from you, you can't tell if it's 480p, 720p, 1080p, or, or 4K. Uh, unless you have some really bizarre supervision. But, yes. Um, <laughs> in that close-up, eight-foot living room environment, there's a big difference between 480p, 1080p, and 4K. That was another thing, too, just in terms of that perception between, say, at a six-foot viewing distance between a 65 and a 55-inch screen, I found my eyes not having to wander over the larger area of the 65-inch right. screen when viewing something like cinematic content where you're trying to take in the whole thing. I really believe what uh, Society for Motion Picture and Television Engineers and THX and those companies are going for is right. don't sit too far away to where it becomes something that you can't become enveloped within the content the way you could if you sat just a little bit closer. But if you sit too close, you end up with that literally watching a tennis match effect yeah, where you the ten the find yourself effect. just straining to take in the whole thing at once. There is a happy medium there for sure. Not only does it come down to the screen size itself, but also the type of content. It's one thing to have a 4K or an 8K TV, but can you really feed it quality 4K or right. 8K content to take full advantage of it? And that's something to keep in mind. It is. And also, you know, as, as you get into massive screens like 80 90 100 inch screens 70 inch screens um, the higher resolution makes more of a difference because you're covering this vast area by comparison uh, to a 40 or a 50 inch screen so the the minimum viewing distance becomes for a higher resolution tv becomes somewhat lower 
than uh, earlier televisions. In any case, some good reading there, worth checking out. Uh, Ratings.com, optimal, actually, <laughs> that's a chart I'm looking at. TV, size to distance calculator, and science. Science! Yeah, if there's anybody out there who's a SIMPTI member and wants to find a copy of that report for me to read, I would be, uh, I would be delighted. So, because I'm actually just kind of curious to see where we've come from and where we're going. <laughs> I appreciate those standards. If you have a clean slate and you're starting a room, a, a yeah. theater room from scratch, so to speak, and just to make sure you're not overdoing it or underdoing it for the sweet spot in terms of viewing. Yeah. They have a nice explainer field of view too. Cool. Um, so I'm pretty sure everything in my house is plugged into a surge protector. Uh, I was thinking about that as, good. The, as the skies opened up and the sounds of Thor flinging his hammer uh, oh. shook the house earlier today. <laughs> no power flickering with every lightning bolt. You know, we get lightning strikes or thunderstorms often enough that I am no longer madly taking advantage of the UPSs to yank the power cord out of the wall. Uh, I may regret not being as enthusiastic about that as I was when we first moved here. But uh, you were also thinking about issues with heat and summer and electronics. Totally. I run a couple of pretty warm computers, and they are both currently air-cooled. And even if they're not, even if they combine liquid cooling, there are still rotating fans within these boxes they generally collect dust like few other things we have in our house. And it's just a great idea to drag those systems outdoors once in a great while, uh, at least a couple times a year, and check those fans, clean out the nooks and crannies, and dust that thing out thoroughly. I highly suggest doing this outdoors. Depending on the condition of your computer, it could be chock full of crap, and the last thing you want to do is to actually use a duster of any kind and then suddenly blast that into your living space and make a horrible mess. <laughs> so uh, do it regularly. Uh, make sure your vents and everything you can is cleaned out. I use one of those electric dusters I've had for years. It works wonderful and it's quick. And I'll take something like a toothbrush real fast, an old used toothbrush to the fan blades themselves and go through everything. Just wipe it all down before I give it the final check. Check all those filters and whatnot. Considering the cost of some computer components nowadays too, it's just... It's something to at least keep in the back of your head and make it a yearly or twice year thing to do to keep your stuff running great. And that would apply to also any of your prized electronics. I find a, a wall-mounted TV, if it sits long enough in just the right angle, it can collect a heck of a lot of dust on the backside of it. And that may be oh. clogging up your vents and other things like that. And as the weather turns warmer, it's just one of those things where it's just good to do a quick check on your prized electronics. And keep them happy. <laughs> it really is. Especially if you have pets. Oh, without a doubt. That, that can be... I swear. <laughs> that can be something else. We or, could have knitted a whole nother cat from what I vacuumed out of somebody's... Uh... <laughs> I gotta say our... Pop of his computer. I think finished shedding for the year. He's got it all ready to go for summertime. He's looking forward to the warm weather, which it has been warming up. About 10 degrees this week compared to last week. So we are definitely moving closer to summer. There you have it. And I need cool GPUs and CPUs. If you're going to run them hard, run them cool. Yeah. I actually am thinking about going to a water block for my CPU because 
I've typically always air cooled them, but for the good air coolers out there, they're gigantic, relatively speaking. And if you're trying to do a compact mm-hmm. build, uh, I'm finding it's taking up too much of the cabinet of the case for potential cooling of other devices within the case that get even hotter. Just to have more airflow around the case, I'm, I think I'm going to actually sacrifice my prized air cooler and swap over, at least on the CPU, uh, for a liquid cooler. Just to give me some more room to push some more air past a very hot graphics card I have. It is an interesting thought. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's so many liquid coolers out. Ah, Gamers Nexus to the rescue. I went right there. Watched a couple of videos and I'm, I've narrowed it down to like one or two. Now I just need to check and see if the case I have is technically just too small to really even consider this. Or can I get away with something kind of compact as far as liquid cooling? Well, you goes. can always mount the radiator outside the case. You know, I'm glad you just said that. Now I'm going to go insane. I'm going for the, as somebody who, the triple radiator. Who did that with an, <laughs> I, I did fan. that with a... Oh man, I, I, I still have that radiator I use. The car radiator. From a six-cylinder, man. Oh, that'll that do. Thing, there was no, there was no. Yeah, it's it's amazing uh, how much cooling you can run through a <laughs> through a radiator that's the size of your PC. All right, people. Ask at avxl.com is the place to email us with your questions, your thoughts, or things you'd like us to talk about, or tweet at Patrick Norton or at Robert Heron. And as always, thank you to our patrons. And if you want to join them, head over to patreon.com slash avxl. With that, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Patrick Norton. I am Robert Heron. We'll catch you next week on AVXL.